Listen, seven years ago, seven years ago last week, Kelsey and I, my wife and I, with our then three kids, took a trip out to Sovereign Grace Church of Orange to explore the possibility of planting a church in downtown Santa Ana, California, with Sovereign Grace Churches, our family of churches. And our then family of five stayed in a two-bedroom apartment with another family of five, ten of us in a two-bedroom apartment, and little did we know that's what Orange County living looks like. (laughs) Six months later, we picked up our family and we moved to our own apartment in downtown Santa Ana off of 2nd and Broadway. Three months after that, we started leading a small group out of that apartment right in the heart of our city. And one year later, that small group held the first service of what was then Sovereign Grace Church of Santa Ana on the evening of November 4th, 2017 at Henninger Elementary School in our little green chairs. But none of that would have happened were it not for God's grace. We are the product of God's grace and nothing more. And God's grace was expressed through our partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches globally, our our family of churches. And Jeff and Jason and I were at the Sovereign Grace Churches Pastors Conference with 700 people from Sovereign Grace Churches across 20 nations. But here in Orange County, we have a special partnership with one particular Sovereign Grace Church, and that's Sovereign Grace Church of Orange. And Eric Trebedsky, the senior pastor of Sovereign Grace Church of Orange, who, who's our guest preacher this morning, he's also the, the regional leader for the West region of the American Sovereign Grace Churches. He's also on the leadership team of Sovereign Grace Churches. Eric was the one who captured our hearts with a vision for planting a church in this city. He and his wife, Kiersey, were the ones who cared for us and urged us forward with faith in God on the multiple occasions, and I kid you not, on the multiple occasions when we were ready to call it quits because it was so hard. Eric was the one who, <laughs> who compelled me and said, you need to live in downtown Santa Ana. Don't go live on the outskirts of Santa Ana on Costa Mesa where rents are cheaper and it's easier to find housing. No, go into the center of the city, be amongst the people that God has called you to spread the gospel to. Eric and Dustin and Mike, the pastors in Orange, were the ones who sent their own members to help us out with our first three months of services. When we were just a small core group of 15 people, they said, hey, we're going to send about 20 others to help you to hold these services for the first three months. They issued us a church planting grant, so they issued us financial support, and they issued us resource after resource after resource and continue to do. We would not be here if it were not for our partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches and particularly with Sovereign Grace Church of Orange. So, Eric, thank you. You've been an instrument in the Lord's hands. And we're asking you this morning if you would come up and serve us one more time. So, would you with me welcome Eric as he preaches God's word to us. Uh, it's my last time, one more time. <laughs> my first and last, no. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you used my name, but it, there's a whole whole church in Orange that we're super friends. We're more than friends. We're super friends. Um, I gotta watch my time. I so respect you and so have so much faith for you. I won't lean into the pulpit. Um, uh, about nine years ago, my wife and I were walking... Uh, we didn't know about the Ebel Club, but we were walking about a thousand feet from here on French Street. I think it's French Street, right? Yeah, French Street. And we were walking up and down French Street praying, would God call us to buy a house in French Park on right there on French Street? Because we believed God was calling uh, a, a group of people that we didn't have names for yet to plant a church here somewhere in this area. And... Uh, it actually was a 
quite a step of faith. I mean, I'm not sure we like the house, <laughs> we, though we'd take any house at that moment. Um, but, but we had a, a burden that the Lord was, was going to do something here. And uh, long story short, we bought a house somewhere else, a little further out, closer to our church, because the 150 people there were saying, why are you moving away from us? <laughs> and, uh, and then about whatever it was, two years later, so we started meeting the Holtons and then the Schleters and a number of you, and uh, the rest is history. So I'm just so grateful for you. I've been praying for you for nine years. <laughs> uh, and so thank you. Thanks for being our super friends. We are so grateful for you. And Orange this morning, they're praying for you. And... Yeah, we just couldn't be more grateful for you, that we're not alone here in Mission in Orange County. So, okay. Um, so thank you. Thanks for having me again. That's my last time here. <laughs> One more time, I know what you're saying. Uh, if you turn with me, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5 this morning. Uh, I want to I I consider, I want us all to consider a familiar passage of Scripture, nothing novel, the Apostle Paul defending his apostleship, explaining to some of the very first Christians, these are some of the very first Christians, what it is that God has commissioned them and him to do, and we are in view as well. And, and I want you to watch as we read it. Watch. Look for all the therefores in the text. The, there are more therefores per square inch in it right here than anywhere else in, in, in the letter to the Corinthians. This is one of those life-defining verses that you can embrace as your therefore. It could be your therefore verse. Paul's apostolic apology, his argument that serves doubly as our commission as Christians, as cross of grace church. So look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, translator heading very helpfully in the English Standard Version reads, the ministry of reconciliation. Here it is, verse 11. I'll read and pray. Therefore, right? Verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience, verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer to those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it's, it is for God. If, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, the Father, made him the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, the Son, we might become the righteousness of God. Very words of God, would you pray with me? Father, take these words and with your spirit, 
change us, we pray. Don't, don't, leave, don't let us leave here the same as we came, even five years later, whatever that is, 250-some Sunday mornings. Again, do what only you can do, which is to change and to save. Father, I pray you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now, listen. I don't know about you and your life in Santa Ana, but over in Old Town Orange, if you've been there, there are a few things that still surprise me. few things that still surprise me, that stop me in my tracks, that take my breath away, other than my wife, that, that, that cause me to say, wow, right? few things that surprise me. Maybe it's because everything I know now is just a Google search away. It's ruined our, di- our family dinner times. Everyone's having a discussion and someone's verifying the facts, you know, on the other end of the table. Uh, maybe it's because we have a beach and the mountains, right? And every kind of food or form of entertainment, it doesn't even matter that it's geographically close to us anymore. All I have to do is click an app and it's delivered to my phone or my home. It's just hard. The 21st century is full of amazement and wonders that should dazzle us, but instead, instead, so much of it has become so normal that we grow numb or bored, just constantly fidgeting, looking for something else, like our phones or air conditioning, which is amazing. Do you have air conditioning here? We didn't have air conditioning in Old Town Orange for many years, and now everyone expects it, <laughs> right? And I, I don't even know how any of it works. I just assume it. It's a regular part of my life, and I am typically unimpressed. And so the saying goes, ho hum, right? Do you know that? Ho hum. I remember when getting a new phone was exciting. Now it's a hassle to go down to the Apple store and get my new phone. Ho hum, right? Flying on an airplane. I did this yesterday while slipping in Americano, watching a movie on demand with air conditioning. Ho hum, right? And unfortunately, the same in the church. Same in the church, I fear. The same goes for so many of the things that happen around us, like people just giving their lives to you, giving their time to you, welcoming your house, eating food together, enjoying tacos and nachos. Uh, we give we, all these things that we give ourselves to and enjoy, and in particular this morning, I want to fo- turn our attention towards something that maybe you've grown a little accustomed to, and that's the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Our mission, your mission, our assignment as the church of Jesus Christ. I, I fear Sometimes we say ho-hum, right? Ho-hum. Or worse, and you know it's from the seven doors, hi-ho. <laughs> worse, that we would hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work we go, right? Church, which never mind, and you guys are from Orange County, you should know this, the seven dwarfs never said that. They actually said hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work we go. You can just Google that later, all right? <laughs> it's a big debate online. See if you can solve it. But for now, let's listen. For us, when it comes to what it is we give our lives to in this lifetime, what we give our lives to in this lifetime, namely straight out of our text this morning, each and every one of us, God making his appeal through us, right? Could it be that is so often the case with many other things, we end up saying ho-hum, I-O, off to work we go, rather than And so that's, that's all I'm after this morning. Remind us once again to keep it fresh, cross of grace. This is a spectacular commissioning. It's a full of wonder assignment, something you can give your life to. You want to know what you're supposed to do, what your life is about? Here it is, a therefore. If you, want to, if you want the kind of staying power that sustains you as you play your part for five years, 10 years, 40 years, and are swept up into God's redemptive purposes and plans here in Santa Ana and Orange County and with us in Old Town Orange and out into the world, we will need to do more than just keep saying, hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work we go. We have to, for our own good and staying power, And for God's glory, marvel. Marvel at our mission, your mission. So, when we read, God is making his appeal through us. Listen, our our first response, God's making his appeal through us, shouldn't be, when and where, get me a map, let's create a strategy. (laughs) But rather, 
why? Why? Why would God be making his appeal through us? Why is God making an appeal at all? That's the marvelous part of the mission of God. That's the marvelous part of the mission of God. God is making his appeal through to sinful men, through sinful men and women and children like us. He's making his appeal that he is offering forgiveness for every sin, a, a debt relief, salvation for anyone who will receive and believe the Son, repent and re- relent, and then be, join the rest of all of us in marveling that he is making his appeal at all. So listen, that's why I want to look at this text. If you look with me, we can't look at everything here. It was a big text, but, but I want you to be wowed at this, wowed at your commission. Look with me again, verse 11. I'm going to give you three questions that everybody should, three questions all of us should have when we read this text. Number one, why would God persuade? Number one, why would God persuade? Seems obvious, but listen, verse 11. Look with me. Therefore, number one, why would God persuade? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade Others, stop right there. This is interesting. Listen. Interesting business that the Apostle Paul is in. For on one hand, he is in no way communicating that he has been attempting to impress the Corinthians or to sell them something with, a, with maybe a slick presentation or an innovative argument or strategy. No, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. That's, this is, that's why this text is here in the first place. He's contrasting himself with those that do that. With other so-called super apostles. That's what it says there. Which, which the Corinthians have been attracted to. They, they have enjoyed the super apostles. That's why he continues, middle of verse 11, but what we are known... What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Not your expectations, not your standards, not your preferences, not for your entertainment, but internally, spiritually, discerningly in your heart. The power of God at work through the plain preaching of Christ and Christ crucified has been, Paul is saying, I hope it has been authenticated. Authenticated, verse 12 again. We're not commending ourselves, see that? We're not commending ourselves to you. God, we're persuading others, but we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. Seems odd, boast about us? More like boast about the work of God at work in us. In spite of him. In spite of you, in spite of me. Verse 12 again. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast. The Corinthians, Paul is saying, if we were honest, you would admit it, as explained to himself in the last chapter, in chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're not impressive. (laughs) To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I love how one scholar translates this. He says, we have been made a theater show for all the world. We're not commending ourselves, verse 12, but giving cause to boast about us. Look what God is doing. So that you may be able to answer those who boast, Paul says, about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. What's interesting there? Numbers. Eloquence, programs in a church, buildings, finances. Once you get those things, and you know how this works in life, you realize there's no power in those things. For a church and a new church, and I mean, I remember, I think it was maybe just a year or two ago where we stopped thanking God at every pastor's meeting that we were going to have another month as a church, and you could look and say, well, there were people showing up, you have, you know, whatever, all this, you're still desperate, because <laughs> God calling us to do this, he, we can water, we can plant, but God's the one that's going to cause it to grow, no building, oh goodness, just Google church buildings for sale, they're everywhere, even in Orange County, not a recipe, necessarily, for prosperity, 
God's work among us. That's what Paul's saying. We're not impressive. But I hope you know, behind us all is an impressive God who's at work. That's why he says, verse 13, if you see that there, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're nuts, it's not for you. We're just enthralled that God has reconciled us and we're, we're tracking with him. We're part of what he's doing. He says, but if we're in our right mind, it's for you. We're trying to keep you along with us. Paul is persuading. He's persuading. But in his persuading, he is trusting, 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 not in his power of persuasion, but in the Lord's, which begs an even deeper question. Before we get to question number two, a deeper question, here it is. If God is able to save, and he is, listen, you can catch that in that little phrase, knowing the fear of the Lord there, knowing the fear, knowing that God is sovereign and does whatever he pleases, positively, negatively, right? And surely this extends to the mission to ransom people, our mission from every nation for the Son and His good pleasure. If this is the case, God saves, God can, is sovereign, and He is, then why would He be persuading anyone when He could simply decree, right? When He could simply just do it. Unilaterally, Right? This is the greater glory. This is what causes you to just not say ho-hum, but marvel at the mission. He creates, we reject him. He creates us, we reject him. And he doesn't simply then just turn the game over, right? Like a snow globe, just shake it up and let's see how it goes this time. No, he sets out now to win for himself a people, that's called the church, win for himself a people like a bridegroom wins a bride. All of God's power. That's what we're watching in this age. All of God's power engaging all of us, his church. Head, heart, soul. I love how one writer, he said, Richard Phillips, this is what he says about this. He says, this irresistible persuasion, and I believe that. When he's, when he's wooing us, we, it's irresistible, like a bridegroom and a bride. This irresistible persuasion glorifies, he writes, the entire trinity by proving how intimately involved God is in every conversion. He writes, it reminds us that when we speak about God's grace, we don't mean that God sits afar, but rather God places his holy hands on our fil filthy hearts. He's persuading, not to necessarily decree. With more personal contact, Phillips writes, than any other surgeon uses in operating on our bodies, God is intimately involved in the salvation of our souls. He writes, how sublime. <laughs> Beyond words it is to realize that this transcendent, majestic God takes such a personal interest in every sinner who comes to Christ. Far from being a nameless number in a vast crowd, every believer has been personally ministered by the surgeon, by God's overwhelming grace. He concludes, truly he is to us as a father is to his dear children. Which is the Christian name for God, Father. He could just drop the hammer and save some. He could save none and just drop the hammer. He, but he could save some and decree saving grace on some. But instead, he woos. He calls. Why? Have you considered this? Why? Why would he do this? Why would God persuade us when he is sovereign? He has no rival. He's all-powerful. You're not, a, you're not a competitive match to him. It is because, because in the tension of his sovereignty and our responsibility, human responsibility, which demonstrates our dignity that reveals, because we're made in his image, his glory, as he persuades us, as the Apostle Paul has been persuaded, I have been persuaded, many in the room, almost all of us have been persuaded. It, it feels, does it not feel like our decision to follow him, to repent? It, it feels like it was almost my decision, my conclusion, my salvation, as if the preacher who preached the gospel one more time and I heard it in my heart and life dissolved before him into a puddle of relief and tears. Maybe it was his convincing speech that caused me to trust Christ, but no, not in the end. We persuade. That's our calling and commission, every one of us, because it is in us as his instruments of 
grace, persuading, he then conquers. For his greater glory, what a marvelous design. He woos us. Why would he persuade? For his glory. Number two. Number two, second question, getting a little deeper into it. Why would he love? That's what we read about here. He's persuading. He's loving. Look again, verse 14 and following. 14 and following. For the love of Christ controls us. And we can just read over and go, of course, I'm lovely. He would love me, right? No. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. One laid down his life, therefore all have died with him that are united with him. Verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. And there it is, our mission, commission. We might no longer live for ourselves, but for him, Jesus, who for our sake, their sake, died and was raised. Notice, please notice, Paul's explanation for why he is being poured out like, a, like an offering, like a drink offering, why, why he does what he does. And what he does is go from town to town getting stoned. Attempted executions, town to town. Why? Why he lives for who he lives is not located in the object of his intended hearers those he's trying to persuade. He doesn't say, for the love of the Corinthians controls us. Or for you and I, the love of Californians controls us. As much as I love California, and I am by grace, and I do have the, the, the honor of representing your church, my church, throughout the Western United States, and so I have to remind them, as much as I love Californians and am enduring endless summers and cool breezes, right, and sunshine, it doesn't say, for the love of Santa Ana controls us. This is way better, way better. Listen, marvel at your mission. It's not even that Paul loves Jesus. so much that he takes the show on the road. It's that God the Father loves us. Why would he love? It's because of who he is. He is love. Michael Reeves, in, in his excellent book, The Lighting in the Trinity, everyone will understand the doctrine of the Trinity, what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. Read that book at some point, Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. This is what he writes. He's comparing our God with all the other gods, so-called gods, all the other gods. He writes, here, uh, for us, here is a God who is not essentially lonely. Here's a God who is not essentially, by nature, lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity because lighting in the tree, as the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for our God, for this God. It is at the root of who he is. He loves. That's the answer that underlines and fuels our mission. <laughs> These are the things, how marvelous, that God is the God of love. These are the, this, this is the kind of thing that will fuel a lifetime, a couple more decades, a couple number, another five-year increments of evangelism and mission and sacrifice and service and love and affection and giving and stewardship and church planting and parenting and small groups when you're tired on a Friday or a Wednesday night or a Sunday night. It feels like it's every night. Someone's in your home. And being present in the lives of your family and neighbors in this community that don't even respect you, even though they're perishing. This is the kind of fuel. This because of who God is. Not because we are lovely, but even while we were yet sinners, our, sinner, our Savior considered his saving us, his delight, his joy, because of love. 
as a, the writer of Hebrews speaking of him. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's a great commission statement. For the joy that was set him endured the cross, that, his mission. It's everywhere in your Bible because your Bible, that's what your Bible is, a mission statement. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, Add all the lists, fill in the blanks for yourself. Picking a neighborhood you wouldn't necessarily want to live in. Spending money the way you wouldn't necessarily want to spend. Friday nights the way you may, that wasn't your preference. Doing without because you're giving to someone else. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of, of the throne of God. Look at, look at, Paul talk about how God's love constrains him. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. That's a, there's an explanation for how you live. For the love of Christ controls me because we, I have concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, I have died too. And he died for all that those who live that I might not live for myself any longer. Let me suggest, okay? And I want you to last another five years. I believe you will. Let me suggest that right here might be the missing factor in the life of a believer who finds it hard to make everyday decisions to be a persuasion for the lost. I'll say that again. This right here might be the missing factor in the life of a believer, you might find yourself here. I'm there, struggling, day in and day out. I wake up, I wake up every morning, an atheist who wants to live for myself, and then, and then start working towards faith in Christ again, right? This right here might be the missing factor in the life of a believer who finds it hard to make everyday decisions, not the big ones, but the everyday small decisions to be a persuasion for the lost. As one author put it, perhaps the root cause of our lack of engagement or our struggle with the engagement to live for someone else other than yourself, as in Jesus, the root cause of our lack of engagement in God's mission is not a missions problem, but a gospel problem gospel problem we demonstrate by our actions or our inactions that we are either marveling or not marveling at God's love for us. We are, this author puts it, when we have chosen to live for ourselves rather than for him, we are unaffected by the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. And so then we live for another goal. Whatever it is that wows us and marvels us, we live for another purpose, another mission. By, by this, but it says, Paul says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Want to be a pastor or a church planter, a deacon, an evangelist, a parent, a member of the worship team, someone who just loves their neighbors more than they love themselves? in relative obscurity with no fanfare. Fortunately, fortunately, that's our future with no fanfare. You gotta fill up with this mystery. So long, hidden, now revealed, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, in love with one another since before all of eternity has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son agreeing with the Father to enter our dark world into our communities, to live for us, to die for us, and be raised out of the grave for us, that he might demonstrate his love for us and his ability to save us and redeem us and reconcile us and invite us into his world, as Jonathan Edwards so eloquently preached so many years ago, into a world of love. He said there is a in heaven, this fountain of love. 
There's this, in heaven, this fountain of love. That's what, we're, that's what we're persuading people. That's what we have been persuaded. This eternal three in one, right? Set without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in glory. And this is what we proclaim in beams of love. Jonathan Edwards writes, there is a fountain that overflows streams and rivers of love and delight enough for all to drink and to swim in, he writes, so as to overflow the world as if there was a deluge of love. I've been reading recently about Portland, Oregon. If you know this town to the north of us, they're waiting for one day there's supposed to be an earthquake that will be a deluge of water, a tsunami to take out the city. So I'm not moving to Portland. You shouldn't move there either. But you live here in Santa Ana, and as we persuade, which is really God persuading through us, we're anticipating a deluge of love. How can we, if, if, if we really get this, how can we, if we are dazzled by it, to, if we steep our souls in this reality, hold back what God has done for us from everyone around us, right? Why choose to do anything else with your life? That's why Paul says there, if you look in verse 16, everything has changed the way I see the world. He writes, from now on, therefore, no, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded even Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We see it all different now. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we see it, oh, he's a new creation. He's just not new and improved. He's not just got some better ethics and morality. No. It's new people altogether. The old passed away. The new has come. We're talking about resurrection power, right? Dead men walking. This reminds me of an old obscure hymn. You'll never find it. I'm going to keep the title to myself. It's, it's, it's a motto for me. I try, we tried to sing it once on a Sunday. It didn't work. Motto for me, whenever I lose hope or I lose my bearings, last couple of years, particularly during the pandemic, I've sung it to myself many times. And, and when I begin to question what I'm doing with my life, here it is. I know that my Redeemer lives. This is great. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. <laughs> Just stop right there. I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. And then he goes, he lives to bless me with his love. He lives to plead my cause above. He lives to crush the fiends of hell. He lives and doth within me dwell. And here comes the chorus, the best part. Shout on. Pray on. We're gaining ground. That's why I love this. The dead's alive and the lost are found. The dead is alive. The lost are found. I see the world totally different now. If you've lost the plot, listen, verse 18, just to go all the way back to the beginning, if you look at verse 18, all this is from God. So we're still at all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's the beginning. So the chief and final answer to the question, especially when it comes to why he loves us in the first place, that by his loving we would love him and enjoy him on earth and heaven for his greater glory. That's fuel for the furnace that warms cross of grace church to want to love Santa Anna. Last question, best question, last question. Why would God persuade? Why would God love? Why would he send us? You should ask the question if you're tracking. Ooh, okay, he's doing some persuading for his glory. Why does he love? Because that's who he is. Well, why me? You, you got to be real here before we look at the text. Why us? Why you? Why me? Why this church? Why the church? Why, why employ us in his persuasion, in his loving, and his others? What does my changed life have to do with anyone else's potentially changed eternal life? We read again, starting in verse 18. Watch this. All of this is from God, yes, who through Christ, not through me or my work, reconciled us to himself and gave us 
the ministry of reconciliation. It's a word that we don't use very often. Reconciliation. Verse 19, that in, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, which assumes that our relationship with God is broken. It says, not counting their trespasses, sins, right, debt, treason against them and entrusting to you. You're here this morning. You're a believer. Trusting to you the message of reconciliation. And here's your therefore. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And here's my answer to why you and why me. I absolutely, I was voted most likely to go to jail in high school. This, and maybe last year too, I don't know, in our, in our old town orange newspaper. Why us? My answer, why not? Why not you? You think you know you? He knows you better than you know you. None of this fits our expectations. Why is he persuading when he's sovereign? Why does he love when we're not lovely? Why us? Why not? At this point, after abolishing the condemnation that would have justly occurred for you, for me, eternal torment, punishment, after, con after conquering us, abolishing this, doing away with all of this, he turns around and then offers you and I our ransom lives that he paid for. He turns around and offers it as a showcase to Santa Ana, to this community, to Old Town Orange, to Californians, like a showcase, a theater show of what he could do for the rest of the world. We are his persuasion. Not so much the word, so you got to speak. We are his representatives. That's that word there. We are his ambassadors. L listen, you want to marvel one more time? Marvel at the mechanics, right, of the marvelous mission. Watch the gears turn here. You see, listen, whether we recognize it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you're thinking consciously of this or not, your lives, my lives, our lives are always persuading. You're making an argument with your life. You're persuading. The question is, what conclusion your life is leading others to believe? What conclusions are being drawn by your family members? <coughs> children, parents, aunts, uncles, all of them. Your children, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates. What conclusion are they drawing as they watch you live your life? That's why this is a great therefore. Because of all that, this is who I am. Inescapable. Can't get around it. And you might have been trying to get around it. Maybe today's the day where the Lord's pushing you in the right direction. Realizing who it is that you have been called to be. Here's how Charles Hodge, an old guy, right? describes the ministry of an ambassador. This is what an ambassador does. He's, an ambassador is at once a messenger and a representative. He's, he's two things at once. He does not speak in his own name. He's a messenger. He does, he does not speak on his own authority. What he communicates is not his opinions or his demands. An ambassador simply, he, but simply does what he has been told or commissioned to say. His message, an ambassador's message, our message, an ambassador's message derives no part of its importance or trustworthiness from ourselves. I don't stand on my own authority. And he says, at the same time, he's more than a messenger. He represents. He said, the word there is, he represents his sovereign. He speaks with authority as accredited in the name.
name of his master. Listen, people are starving to meet people like you. Not because of who you are, but because of who you represent. Most people don't know it. Of course, they think they're starving for something else. Fame, success, money, <laughs> excitement, entertainment, acceptance, community, all those kind of things. <laughs> Listen, you have found yourself in a generation, in this place, in a church, if you belong here, at such a time as this, not by coincidence, you're not ultimately a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad, single or married, widowed or divorced. You're not defined by how you look. You're not defined by what you wear. You're not defined by what you do for a living or by how much money you make and earn, by where you live, by who you cheer for. Who are we cheering for today? The Rams? Forget it. No, it's at this point. Going back to the Raiders. Your identity is not found in your gender, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status. You're not defined by your past as an addict or an alcoholic or a student or a graduate or a victim of even abuse. You're not what your counselor says you are. You're not defined by your genetic makeup, your past and history and family lineage. You're, you're not what your supervisor at work defines you as, as your present performance. You're not what you're, if you're younger, you're not what your parents and teachers might tell you that is based on your potential for the future. No, you are in Christ. Christ is in you. He is your identity. That's what it means to be an ambassador. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. The old is gone. I'm no longer my own. We live for someone else, even though it feels like I'm trying to just scrape out a living. <laughs> Listen, cross the grace, don't, don't let the world steal you away from this. There's countless priorities in this city and community and in your family. Don't let the world steal this from you. Christ in you. Christ in you now. Christ in you forever. This is who you are, cross of grace. You have an entirely new ID. This is the real ID, okay? And if you haven't got one yet, a deadline is April, whatever. <laughs> DMV has sent me here. <laughs> Sponsors sponsoring this message. Uh, this is your new identity, and with it comes an entirely different perspective and purpose and goal and mission. And sometimes it might even feel like your life is kind of frustrated, not going the direction you want because you're not complying with your new name. Marvel at the mission of God. The dead are alive. Look around. The lost are found. He has loved us and pursued us and persuaded us and saved us. And he doesn't end with us. He doesn't end. It doesn't end with us. And so we say in every way, the more mature we grow, the more clear it becomes, the less entangled we are with the things of this world, the more our heart breaks for the dying before our very eyes. It's not all the social ills that make us groan that we see them dying in. No, we see not in their loneliness and their brokenness or their sickness or abuse, the wars, the hate, all of it. No, although they are all there and heartbreaking, listen, we no longer see people the way we used to see people. But instead, we embrace our therefore. Everyone else can have their therefore. But you're not an ambassador to whatever that social program you're thinking of right now is. Verse 21, last time. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. 
we implore you, here's your message, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't let anyone keep you from the offer, offer of forgiveness for every sin and being made whole for every evil deed, for every consequence, all the shame and the guilt, you can exchange it all, Paul says, for the sinless life of Jesus Christ. Today, the offer is ours, all of ours for the taking, to believe and to confess, come out of the shadows and allow him to wash us white as snow. You think you can fix it? Listen, Paul is saying, you think you can fix it, but we're here today, we're ambassadors of Christ I thought I could fix it, but we can't. We need a savior. His name is Jesus, and that's why this church exists. That's why you're here. That's why you live here. That's why you live in 2022. To say with everything you got, be reconciled to God. Would you pray with me? Father, overwhelmed by your love for us, which just demonstrates grace for us. We pray you would reconcile us to yourself. Father, I rejoice for every new life here where the old has passed away and the new has come, new creatures, new people with new names and a new purpose. And Father, for the one, the one who has resisted you. I don't know everybody in the room, but the one who has resisted you, and today you are wooing them. Lord, I pray you would do. (laughs) As I have tried to persuade, Lord, I pray you would conquer. That's really what it is, to take enemies and make them sons. Oh, Lord, would you do that today? Breathe life into this room and into souls this morning that we might all all be reconciled to you and enjoy you forever we pray in jesus name amen